This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Are you excited about studying God's Word together this morning? Turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3. If you're tuning in via live stream today, I want to encourage you to go to today's description. Go ahead and download a listening guide. That way you can follow along with me as we make our way through the text this morning. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles this morning, I want to ask you a personal question I want you to consider in your heart. Have you ever wanted to be someone else? Now, let me qualify that just a little bit more specifically. Have you ever looked around you, seeing what someone else is, how they look, what they can do, maybe what they have, and and when you look at them, you simply long to just be able to do what they do and have the influence that they have. Perhaps you've even rationalized in your mind, God, if I just had the looks of that guy, or if I had the abilities of that girl, or if I just possessed the things they possess, man, oh man, the difference I could make in the church or in the world. I don't really have to wonder if you've ever thought things like this, because I believe in actuality, we all believe that or have thought that at some part, at some point in our lives in some form or another. You see, envying another's abilities or station in life is a form of discontentment that plagues all of us as fallen creatures. But what seemingly unites us in our humanity can also devastatingly debilitate us in our walks with God, if not careful. For you see, if we're not careful in this regard, we will convince ourselves that God only uses the best looking or the best educated or that he only calls the most powerful or the most experienced to make a difference in his kingdom. And this inferiority mindset negatively affects the kingdom of God by keeping more Jesus-empowered disciples in a state of spiritual inertia by convincing us that we simply cannot be used by God. But here's the primary problem with the inferiority, the spiritual inferiority complex. It's not biblical. It's just not biblical. And that's where this morning's text comes to play. For this morning, we're going to learn when and where God first called Moses. Remember last week, we read about Moses' birth and his early life, and we read about the slavery of God's people in Egypt, and I told you that Moses would be the deliverer for Israel. He just did not know it yet. Well, this morning, he's going to find out. Because God's going to introduce himself to Moses. He's going to appear to Moses. And then he's going to call Moses and then send Moses on his God-appointed task. And so before we dive into this morning's text, I want to underscore an important universal truth for us. And here it is. You can pick up here in your notes. Our God 
is the God who sends. Last week, as I introduced the book of Exodus to you, I shared with you that God has always had a people, whether in times of ease or in times of difficulty, God has always had a people. He's always multiplied those people. And I told you also that one of the core missional purposes of this book of Exodus is that God desires that his name might be known among his people and among the nations. And you're going to see that theme throughout the book as we make our way through it. But here's what's particularly important as we get to today's passage. Is that since God desires that his name be known among his people and among the nations, God sends his people to accomplish that task. So perhaps I could say it this way, God makes himself known among his people in order to send his people out to make himself known among the nations. And so our God is the God who sends. So let's dive into the text this morning to discover what happens when God calls human actors to be a part of the divine story that he himself is writing, directing, and carrying out on earth. So I'm going to read the first 12 verses of the book, of uh, the chapter 3 of the book of Exodus. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, you shall serve God on this mountain. Okay, there's a lot going on here. We won't be able to unpack every aspect of it, either in chapter 3 or in chapter 4, but I want you to consider some significant realities as they pertain to God's calling Moses more than 3,000 years ago and what it means for Christ followers like you and me today. So first, consider this reality from the Scriptures. God uses ordinary people to accomplish 
his extraordinary plans. Now we see this reality on full display in the opening of chapter 3. Now Moses was an 80-year-old shepherd simply tending to his father-in-law's flock. And the scriptures tell us that he led the sheep outside of Midian towards a mountain called Horeb. Now we're going to later know this as Mount Sinai. In other words, Moses was an average, ordinary man, a senior citizen, a shepherd, simply going about his daily duty. That's when God met him. And as we've already read in the text, it's when God called this very ordinary man to accomplish his extraordinary purposes through this man named Moses. And God used supernatural means through which to appear to Moses, right? A burning bush that didn't burn. I love the casual way the scriptures write and responds to God's supernatural works, right? Look again at verse three. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight why the bush is not burned. You think? I mean, that's not something you see every day. I I would want to investigate it further, too, until the bush started talking to me and calling me by name. But that's exactly what the text tells us happened in verse 4. And at this point, we learn that Moses was was a much more courageous man than I. Because fire is one thing. The Lord's presence is one thing. But when the landscaping knows my name... It's time to go back home with or without the sheep. But Moses stays. And as he stays, God drew him close and continued sharing his heart. And this might be the first time in God's uh, in the scriptures that God's presence and fire are linked together. But it certainly won't be the last. As a matter of fact, when you make your way through the Old Testament, you will see God appearing to people supernaturally through fire often. And it makes sense when you think about it. Because we humans are drawn to fire, aren't we? As children, we like to play with fire. Okay, as adults, we do too. But We like to play with fire, but we're also taught to stay away from fire. Because when approaching fire, we can only get so far before getting burned. Fire is enticing. So is God. But fire also is really dangerous. And Moses learned firsthand that so is God's holiness. This encounter teaches us this. But I don't want you to miss the bigger picture. That God called Moses, a geriatric shepherd, to deliver his people out of the oppressive slavery of the powerful Egyptian Pharaoh. This is not exactly the first person or the type of person that we would think that God would use for his powerful plans. But it's whom he chose. God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary plans. But we're not primed to think this way, though, are we? We're cultured to think that if God's going to do something big, if he's going to do something significant, then he's going to call the super educated or the uber wealthy or the ultra famous or the super powerful if he's going to get the job 
done and get it done right. That's on the macro level. But even on the micro level, like here in the local church, we're primed to think that God only uses the super gifted, the top of his class leader to make an impact in his kingdom. But brothers and sisters, take heart this morning from Exodus chapter 3. The pattern that we see throughout the scriptures is this. God uses average, ordinary people simply going about their mundane, everyday lives to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. Now let's go a little bit deeper in understanding Moses' unique call So that we might extrapolate some universal principles of God's call to us. So as God sends us, one, we tell them his name. In verse 13, Moses asks the question, Okay, so if I go to the people of Israel and say to them what you just told me to say, they might just ask me just who it was who told me these things. And so, pray tell God Who should I tell them sent me? And God's answer in verse 14 is one of the most important verses in all of the Bible because it's one of the most demonstrative self-revelations from God to man. Read with me. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God calls himself I am. I am sends you. The original language is literally translated, I be who I be. Again, what might be poor English grammar comes out to serve as really good theology because it simply means that God is self-sufficient and cannot be defined by anything or anyone outside of himself. He goes on in verse 15 to call himself the Lord, which is translated Yahweh. Yahweh is God's personal name. Just as I am Chris, God is Yahweh. Now there are a lot of things that we could say this morning about these names of God, but suffice it to say that God simply is. He is the center of the universe he is the source from which all things exist, from which, uh, in which everything finds their definition and have their meaning. You fast forward over to the New Testament in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus called himself I am, linking his identity to Yahweh of Exodus chapter 3. In fact, when referencing the burning bush episode, many theologians call that appearance a theophany, which is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. So as Moses was to tell others God's name, so you and I, we are to tell others God's name also. And so when we speak about God, We're telling others about the Yahweh of the Bible, the one who sent his son, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. But we also tell them his word. We also tell them his word. Moses is going to go on in verses 15 and 17. God is going to tell Moses in verses 15 to 17 what he wants Moses to tell the elders, the leaders of God's people. 
And in verse 16, he says, Go and gather the elders together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of all of those ites. Okay, we'll just leave it there. God gives Moses a specific word to give to the people. Brothers and sisters, God has given us a specific word too. And he's accounted it in his word. He's recounted it here. He's preserved it for us. And so as we go and talk to others, we tell others God's name, yes, but we also tell them his word, what he has said. I love the way Tony Marita says it because even though our circumstances might be practically different, he sums up our responsibility here as saying we tell them who God is and we tell them what God has said. That's what a messenger of God does. Whether it was Moses 3,000 years ago to the elders of Israel and to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, or whether it's you and I talking to our neighbors today, we tell them who God is and we tell them what God has said. But then as we go, not only do we have something on our lips, we also have something in our hearts. We also trust, and we see two things here. We trust his promises. So as God sends us, we trust his promises. Now make no mistake about it. The task God called Moses to accomplish was daunting to say the least. We might even say that it was impossible. Think about it. A mere octogenarian shepherd going up against the mighty king, the Pharaoh of Egypt. Excuse me, but my God told me that you have to free all of us from our slavery. The thousands upon thousands upon thousands of us, you have to free us. Yeah, right. That's humanly impossible. And so that's why it's crucial to note that throughout this episode, God gives Moses assurance after assurance. He gives Moses his promises. In verse 18, God says, the elders will listen to you. In verses 19 through 20, he says that you're going to go before the king of Egypt and demand that they let you go. And they're not going to listen to you. But I'm going to make them listen to you, he says in effect. And then in verses 21 through 22, God tells the people that they're going to have favor and that he's going to give them everything that they need. And then, of course, if you go back to verses 7 through 10, which we've already read, God summarizes his promise that he has heard their cry, he knows their plight, and he will bring them out of the land of Egypt and to the land of promise. Moses could trust God's promises. In the face of his impossible calling, Moses would experience success in his task. And brothers and sisters, thousands of years later, you and I can trust God's promises in the face of our task too. I know that it might seem daunting and it might be scary as we think about telling other people about who God is and what God has said in his gospel. But we can be assured that we will have success too. 
Perhaps not in every single conversation and perhaps not in every single relationship that we have, but God has promised that we will have success too. So as we are sent, we tell them God's name, we tell them God's word, we trust God's promises, and then we trust his presence. Perhaps the most important part of this divine reality that we're seeing this morning is the reality that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary plans, but we don't go it alone. His presence goes with us. God doesn't call you, he does not call me, sends us out into this scary task, into the unknown, and then say, good luck. No, he accompanies us. He is with us. Look at verse 12. He said, but I will be with you. This totally reminds me of the oft-forgotten phrase in Jesus' great commission, right? After commanding us to make disciples of all nations, Jesus comforts us with the promise of his own presence with us. Saying, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what we see in Exodus 3 is that I am sent Moses, a very ordinary octogenarian shepherd to accomplish the extraordinary task of delivering God's people from Egyptian slavery. And friends, as Christ's followers today, I am sends you. And he sends me, you and me, very ordinary Very average, everyday people. And he takes us and uses us to accomplish the extraordinary task of telling others God's name and God's word so that they might experience deliverance from their slavery to sin. That's the first universal reality when God sends his people. He uses ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary plans. A second reality we learn also here in chapter 4. God will use you in spite of who you are, not because of who you are. The second reality is a crucial companion reality to the first. And it's one that Moses seemed to have missed Because in response to God's call and in response to God's promises, Moses put up several human excuses as to why he couldn't do what God had called him to do and what God said that he would do. Let's look at them really quick together. If you go back to chapter 3, God in verses 1 through 10, God gives his command. God gives his commission, tells Moses what he's going to do through him. And here's Moses' response in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should bring, should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? To which God says, but I will be with you. In chapter four, verse one, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord didn't appear to you. And then what God does in verses 2 through 9, which I won't read for the sake of time this morning, but God does 
three demonstrative, supernatural, miraculous signs through Moses in order to prove to Moses that it would ultimately be God doing the work through him and not Moses alone. And then in verse 10 of chapter 4, Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. To which God responds, I'm the one who made your mouth. And I will give you speech. And then when all other excuses didn't seem to work with God, Moses finally just throws his hands up and says in verse 13, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. Have you ever been there? The scriptures tell us, then God got mad at Moses and pointed his attention to his brother Aaron, who would be a co-laborer with Moses. And God reaffirmed the fact that he would ultimately be the one doing the work through Moses and Aaron. Here's what God was ultimately showing Moses. And by proxy, you and me, God doesn't call us because of who we are. It's not because of your eloquence or your strengths or your abilities or your education or your looks or your experience. It's not by any human measure by which you might boast. He calls you in spite of who you are. Think about this for a moment. Moses' weaknesses weren't an unknown commodity to God. Moses' weaknesses were baked into the equation. His inabilities, his insecurities. But God called him anyways. And God is intimately acquainted with all of your inadequacies. God knows your weaknesses, He knows your insecurities. But yet, if you are in Christ Jesus, God calls you too. And he will use you in spite of who you are, just like he used Moses in spite of who he was. And so with that in mind, I want you to see two application points here from the text. Number one, this morning, it's time to relinquish your excuses. It's time to relinquish your excuses I wonder what your excuses are today. I mean, when you hear God's call to tell others who he is or to tell others what he said or to serve that need that you know about or to go to that person whom God's calling you to love or serve, what is your reaction? Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm not credentialed. I don't have enough education I don't have enough experience. I don't hold a leadership position in the church. It's just not my place. Or maybe you think, I don't know enough. Or like Moses, you might say, what if I don't know what to say? It's also quite possible that you might suffer from the inferiority complex I mentioned in this morning's intro. You look around you and you see other Christians who seem more confident than you 
more gifted than you, more charismatic than you, more liked than you, or you just look at them and just think, I'm just not as good as they are. I can't be used. Or maybe even, I shouldn't be used. But all of our excuses, it might just be that we're looking at God and saying, just please send somebody else. I'm scared. I don't want to do this. You see, the inferiority complex runs both deep and wide. It runs deep because it affects the very depths of our identity and our confidences. It runs wide because, believe it or not, it affects each and every one of us with varying levels of intensity. And notice I said us and not just you. But what our excuses and senses of inferiority fail to remember is that God uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary and that God uses us not because of who we are or what we have to offer, but in spite of who we are and how little we have to offer In the New Testament, Paul makes the same point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verse 26, he writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so this morning, in response to what we've already read, be willing to relinquish your excuses. And the reason is because you are far more ready than you think you are, and you are far more usable than you realize. Here's why. Because as you relinquish your excuses... You rely upon your God. You rely upon your God. Here's what is noteworthy throughout Moses' excuses. In each excuse, Moses responded with I, 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 me, me, me. Who am I? What if they don't believe me? I'm not eloquent. I, 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 me, me, me. Moses was focused on what he brought to the table. But in each instance, God also responded with I. And for the record, God's I is much stronger than yours. I will be with you. I will give you signs and wonders. I will be your speech. You see, Moses focused on what little he brought to the spiritual table, but God pointed Moses' attention to what he would do through him. As a pastor, a few things burden my heart more than hearing one of my church members or one of my team members saying something along the lines of, I 
can't be used. Or I'm not as good as the others. I don't know enough. I don't have the abilities that so-and-so has. It hurts my heart. And the reason is because they've allowed themselves to believe a lie from the enemy that's meant to keep them down. To keep them from contributing towards the ongoing mission of God. It's the lie of the enemy to convince God's children that they are useless in the advance of God's mission. You see, the greatest threat that we oftentimes face in God's mission is not our lost neighbor who goes into greater and greater depths of moral degradation. That's not Satan's greatest threat here. It's to convince those who have already been saved that they're not good enough and can never be used to do something great in God's kingdom. Because if he can keep enough of us handicapped, then he thinks in the moment that he might win. This makes me think about elephants. Really, Chris? Because I never thought about that as you were talking. But (laughs) it makes me think about elephants. Perhaps you already know this, but in order to train baby elephants, a handler will chain one of the little elephant's feet to a simple stake in the ground. And at first, the little guy will tussle and and tug at the stake, but eventually he will acquiesce to his confinement. And then as he goes on, what he starts learning is that the chain and the stake immobilize him and there's nothing he can do about it. But the elephant continues to grow. And the elephant continues to grow stronger and stronger and stronger, even becoming one of the largest animals in the animal world. And an adult elephant with just one simple flick of the ankle could burst through and burst away from that simple stake in the ground. But the stake and the chain remind him that it fetters him. The elephant doesn't even recognize the power that resides inside of him. That something so insignificantly small could thwart his release. Brothers and sisters, I wonder how many of us live our Christian lives like these elephants. The lie of the enemy chains us to this stake in the ground saying, you can't, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you don't know enough, you're not popular enough, you're not gifted enough, you're not like those other guys, you're not like those other girls, so you can't be used. That's their job. It's not yours. But when you believe those lies, you're failing to remember that you are far more powerful than you think you are because your power and your ability actually aren't defined by your power and your ability. They are defined by God's power working through you. And I love the way Louis Giglio puts it. God and anybody, God and anybody else is an overwhelmingly powerful team. And so in essence, follow my logic here. 
In essence, when you fall into the inferiority trap and you simply stay there and you say that you can't be used, what you're ultimately saying is that God isn't strong enough to use you. Think about it. Because you're in essence saying that God can use anybody. I hear you, pastor, but he can't use me. And follow this logic. If he can't use you, then you're saying that there is something that God can't do. But the scriptures tell us that God is omnipotent and there is nothing that he can't do. And so therefore, by saying that God cannot use me, you've just denied God's omnipotence and made yourself a functional heretic. Don't be a functional heretic, brother and sister. Don't deny God's power. Embrace your weaknesses. Embrace your inabilities. For the moment you embrace your weaknesses, you are firmly and best primed to be used by God because my Bible tells me in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 that God's power is perfected in my weaknesses. So let loose of the excuses. Relinquish your excuses. Stop the comparisons and recognize that God uses you not because of who you are, but in spite of who you are. Third reality that we see from the text this morning is that when God calls you, obedience is the only fitting response. That when God calls you, obedience is the only fitting response. Now here's what we've seen. We've seen God appear to Moses God has called Moses. He is sending Moses out. Moses is given all the excuses of why he can't. God reaffirms why he can because it won't be Moses at all. It will be God through Moses. And now in verse 18, look at what happens. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey, went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. What is Moses doing? Very simply, he is doing what God commanded him to do. It took some, it took some, some navigating to get there, but he got there. He does what God commanded him to do. Now go with me down to verse 27. In verse 27, Aaron, God says to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So Aaron went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Aaron does what God commanded him. Verse 28, and Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Moses is doing what God had commanded him to do. Verse 29, then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel, might I add, just like God had told him to. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, did the signs in the sight of the people, just like God had told him to, verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Here's the pattern that we see. God calls his people, God commands his people, and they obey God. 
Brothers and sisters, there are so many things throughout this Exodus narrative that we're going to read and we're going to scratch our heads and we're going to really wonder how in the world do we apply this to our current context. There's an application that's just very simple. My, my little sisters on this front row here who are in their adolescence and younger, they can get this. God commands us to do something and we do what God tells us to do. That's the spiritual physic for the Lord and his economy. When God calls you, obedience is the only fitting response. And you might say, well, I've never had a burning bush experience. Well, neither have I. But here's what the scriptures tell us. Is that if you are in Jesus Christ, God has called you. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that God has called you out of the domain of darkness into his marvelous light. So you are called if you were a Christian. We don't have to sit around wondering, has God called me? Because he has called you because you are his follower. He calls you at the moment of salvation. And we don't have to really wonder what it is that God has called us to do on the macro level because that was given to us in the Great Commission. Jesus commanded us, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe everything that I've taught you to follow. And so at the macro level, we understand that God has called me and he has sent me to make disciples. That much is known. I don't have to wonder if I've been called. I don't have to wonder what my primary task is. Where it gets challenging is navigating the specifics of how I do that on a daily basis. And the reality is he has gifted each of us in unique ways and put us in unique circumstances and spheres of influence where we can do those things in those contexts out of who we are. And so the problem with the comparison trap is that so oftentimes what we're trying to do is we are trying to carry out God's calling and God's commission in our unique context while keeping our eyes on other people who they're not in my context. And God hasn't put me in their spheres, but he's put me in mine. And so we embrace our weaknesses We embrace our inadequacies. We lay them at the feet of Jesus and we say, use me. If you can use anything, Lord, come on and use me. If you'll use anybody, Lord, come on and use me. Because it's not me, it's you. I wonder this morning, are you willing to be, are you willing to be a usable vessel? Because that's really the question this morning question is not whether or not you've been called. The question is not whether or not you've been sent. The question is whether or not you will see yourself and open yourself up to be a usable vessel through which God might advance his mission. In Exodus chapter 3, we learn that he called and sent Moses Later in the scriptures, he's going to call and send King David. He's going to call and send the prophets. Ultimately, he'll send his son, Jesus Christ, who himself will call and send out the first disciples. And brothers and sisters, he's still calling and he's still sending. And so this morning, the first call for you might be to recognize that you've never responded to God's initial call of salvation. That you haven't repented of your sins and 
turn to Jesus in faith to say, would you call me out of darkness and into your marvelous light so that I might be used by you? And you might be thinking, well, that would be really a, much, a lot easier for me to do if God would just give me a sign. If he would give me a sign like he gave Moses in chapter 4, then might I believe. But Jesus actually says in Matthew 12, don't ask for a sign. An evil and adulterous generation ask for a sign. As a matter of fact, Jesus appeals to Jonah being swallowed into the belly of a well for three days and then uses that to point to his own death and resurrection. And he says that no sign's going to be given you except the sign of Jonah, which he's ultimately saying the cross and the empty tomb. The ultimate sign for us, brothers and sisters, is the empty tomb. That's, our, that, that's what we point towards. It's the ultimate sign from God that he is who he says he is. And it's the sign ultimately on our lips that we go and tell other people about. So I wonder today, would you believe that? Would you turn to that and allow God to call you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? And when he does, and I know I'm speaking to a majority of us in this room and those of you watching this morning. If God has called you, he will equip you to do that that he sends us out to do. What has God given you a heart for today? I think about some of the brothers and sisters in our faith family. God has given some of you a heart for broken women who live in homes in this area. And I, I know some of you visit them and you walk alongside of them. He's given some of you a heart for the homeless. And you go and you spend time with them and you serve them and you speak the gospel to them. He's given some of you a heart for your friends and your uh, your lab partners and the, and the students who are in your classes. And so the, you're among them. He's given some of you a, a heart for those who live in hospice and who are on their deathbed. He's given others of you a heart for other families and, and people with ch- uh, families with children in your neighborhoods. God has given a lot of us a heart for a lot of different people who are in need. And just as the scripture said about God earlier, you have surely seen their affliction and you have heard their cry and you know their sufferings. And so often we look at all of this and we're waiting for some dictum to be given from the pulpit to go and do that before we'll go and do it. Or we throw our hands up and say, man, I have such a heart for that. Somebody needs to go and take care of that. Have you ever stopped to think that if God has given you a heart for someone or some particular affliction, that God intends you to be the one to go do something about it? Brothers and sisters, that's my heartbeat this morning. I don't want you to be living in spiritual inertia I know you have weaknesses. I have them too. I know you have your insecurities. Believe it or not, I have them too. But here's what I know on the authority of God's word and through the experience of my life. He will use, yes, even you, to do extraordinary things for his name's sake. I wonder if this morning might be the day that you finally embrace that reality with your whole heart. Father, I pray for my people this morning. I pray that they would see themselves in your text. And Father, I pray for them today that you would give them the power to lay down their their excuses 
lay down their weaknesses, lay down their insecurities, their lack of confidence. And I pray that they would embrace not a bigger vision of themselves, but a bigger vision of you. And that when they see how big you are and how powerful you are, that you in all of your bigness and grandness would use even little old them that they would have no choice but just to open up their arms and hands and say, Oh God, if you can use anything, come on and use me. And if you can use anybody, come on and use me. Father, I pray that's the reality today in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen.